0: If you'd like to turn to chapter 4 of the book of Mark, unless you have memorized the entire book of Mark, you might want to turn and look with me. Verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God. Is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil, goes to bed at night, and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows, how he himself, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This uh, little parable is found only in the book of Mark, but it was probably delivered on the day of the great parabolic discourse that Matthew records in the 13th chapter. On that day, Jesus did a remarkable thing. Without assistance of amplification, PA, he told his disciples to row out a little bit out into the lake, and he taught hundreds of people sitting on the bank and on the mountains above him. All day long, these parables. I mean, it went all day. And there would be little brief periods of intermission, but Jesus didn't stop or rest. He just got with his disciples aside in the boat and he taught them deeper meanings of truth. And probably this parable came from that, from that day. Now it is often neglected because it is so similar to the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And it is often ignored because it, as some scholars believe that it's just a scaled-down version of the parable of the sore and the seeds and the soils. But it is a remarkable parable. And the matter of the, of the parable is growth. But Jesus reveals three inclinations of the human heart that are inappropriate in the kingdom of God, from this marvelous little parable. The first is pride, inappropriate, in the kingdom of God. And in that phrase he uses, the the soil produces crops by itself. He uses a word, really, in the Greek, from which we get the word automatically or automatic. And what he's saying is, is that the soil produces crops automatically. For the farmer knows that he may create an environment for growth, but he cannot create growth. And whatever else this parable teaches, it does teach this, that there is germane, or at the heart of human nature, the inability to do some things. That man is basically helpless to do some things. That man in the fullest sense has never created anything. He can rearrange, he can discover, he can develop, but to create man can never do. For behind everything is God and the will of God and the power of God and the helplessness of man. Now that's a big pill to squat to swallow. Because since the primal man wore a fig leaf in the garden to the modern man who wears tassel shoes and button-down collars, man has always wanted to be God. And he's always played the primal game of playing God. For it's hard for man to ever come to face the fact that he is just human and not God. Now there is a perfect example, a beautiful example of it in the book of Acts. Now I want you to turn to it because it is, it is so relevant. It's in the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. Now let me, set the, let me tell you what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas have come to the city of Lystra and they find a man there who's crippled and they heal him. In Lystra are these temples to the pagan gods, and these people worship the gods of Greek mythology. And they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods, gods Zeus and Hermes who have come to life. They see similarity between Paul and Barnabas to the gods they worship, and so they start to worship them as gods. And Paul and Barnabas come rushing in when they see what's happening. They take off their robes to show their men. This is what they say in verse 14. Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. I like the King James translation. We are just men. We are but men. Now if Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, is the greatest confession, this Lyconian confession is the second greatest confession. We are but men. We're just human. Now, sooner or later, everybody has to make that confession. It may come in some catastrophe, it may come buried in a silent neurosis. It may come at the beginning of life. It may come at the beginning of your family when you start your family. It may come at midlife crisis. It may come in the declining years. It may come at death. But every man, sooner or later, will make that confession. I'm just a man. I'm just a human. I am not God. I want you to see this scenario. Paul and Barnabas, really, they're just common guys, really. And they have been harassed and chased from pillar to post. I mean, they have been abused and misused. But when they get to Lystra, all of a sudden these crowds of people are worshiping them. They're hanging garlands around their necks. They're kissing them. They're they're throwing flowers in the air and they're getting ready to sacrifice to them. And I have a feeling that they were torn between two common natural responses. I mean, they must have thought, you know, wanted to say on one hand, don't stop, this is fun. And on the other hand, they knew they should say, don't stop, this is not real. And I have a feeling that Paul had had enough medals pinned on him that it was no big deal, but this is the first time anything like this has happened to Barnabas. I mean, the first time flash bulbs have ever popped around him. And I have a feeling he might have leaned over to the Apostle Paul and said something like this. What would be wrong with waiting till tomorrow to tell them that we're not God? I suppose that most of us spend our life either in the the self-deception that says it's not true or running from the reality that we are only human and that we are not God. There are some perils in playing God. One great peril of playing God is is that God takes being God very seriously. I mean, He's the only one who is. That's what He is, and there is no other. And the burden of deity, the second peril is that the burden of deity or divinity is too heavy for you to carry. Now, God can carry the burden of deity, but it'll crush you and if you allow somebody to put the mantle of divinity on your shoulders, it'll break your back. And the peril of deity is is that the crowd will constantly demand of miracles for you. I mean, if you can't produce the blade of corn tomorrow, they'll stone you. But the greatest peril of deity is, is that lo- as long as you're playing God or I'm playing God, we can't witness to Him. For how can I witness to him when I am playing God myself? And unless I'm willing to admit that I'm a human just loved by God in Christ, how can I bear witness to him? How can I ever be grateful for his grace if I never make a mistake? And so D.T. Niles said, I am one of those people who is loved by God I'm just one of those sinners for whom Christ died. That's the central truth about me and everything else is peripheral. And it was said of Livingston, the great explorer and missionary, that he was known by the arm that was maimed by a lion. It probably is true that the healed wounds of our sinfulness and the confession of our humanity in the midst of a a self-centered generation is the greatest witness we can give to him. Inappropriate to the kingdom is pride. Second, inappropriate to the kingdom is despair. And so he says in verse 27 that the farmer goes to sleep at night and he wakes up in the morning and the crop is growing. Inappropriate is despair. Now, there is on the one hand this self conceited humanism that says I'm adequate for anything. But the other end of the spectrum of human nature is this despair that is settling down upon us that says that there is no hope. But the parable teaches that there is within the kingdom an impulse of irresistible growth and that everything's going to be okay, and that the purpose of God is the most powerful thing in the world, and that we don't understand always what is happening, we don't understand how it happens, why it happens, etc., but when we do all that we can, then God begins to do what He can, and what He can, we can't and that God is in control, and everything's going to be all right. It's a summons to hope, and God knows we need it. This age in which you and I live has been called the age of despair, and there seems to be this kind of a feeling that, that nothing's going right, and we've lost confidence in the government in the Congress and in congressmen, and we've lost confidence in the church and in churchmen, and we've lost confidence in everything around us, and there seems to be this pervading mood of hopelessness. H.G. Wells said, Man who began in a cave behind a windbreak will end in the diseased, soaked ruins of the slums And Hemingway used to talk about us, say that we're like ants trapped in a burning log. An old man's body was found in the Bronx not long ago. He had a note attached. He had killed himself. He attached a note to his shirt. It read, I'm a nobody. Nobody gives a hang about me. I'm like a peanut in Yankee Stadium, and I decided to step on myself once and for all. I have a feeling that some of us feel that the game is up. But I tell you, you cannot believe in God and think that way. You cannot believe that the God you believe in is is like He is, and and have room for pessimism. Regret, perhaps, remorse, introspection, penitence, a sense of, of failure and mistake on your part. But despair never, you can never believe in the God you believe in and be pessimistic. For the purposes of God will never be defeated. Not by your sin or mine, not by gridlock in Washington not by the inconsistency within the church, not even death can defeat the plan of God. She was a Hanoverian countess. She didn't believe in anything really and she, didn't, she, she disbelieved in God and she absolutely rejected the idea of, any, of, of, of the possibility of anybody being brought out of the grave. And so she gave specific instructions when she died how she wanted to be buried. They put a marble, a, 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 a granite slab over her grave and they put huge stones on four corners and attached chains to the, to the granite slab and to the stones. And they put a, a, an epitaph, an inscription over her grave. This burial place, is established for all eternity and shall never be opened. And when they'd done all they could to seal the tomb, the epitaph reminded everybody of, of, of the impossibility of the fact of the resurrection, except for a small birch tree growing nearby. And the birch tree sent its roots down and over time began to, to grow, and got lodged between some of the cracks, some of the part of the slab, and as it grew, it began to move up, and the slab began to move until the chains and the, and the locks were snapped, and the granite slab came up and now rests against the trunk of the tree, a reminder of a, of a determined tree or a powerful God and a reminder that not even death can defeat his purpose. I was coming out of Highland Cemetery the other day and I noticed somebody had placed some fresh flowers on a grave near the road and they were kind of waving in the breeze, reminding the people buried there that they they were not forgotten. As I exited Highland Cemetery, I felt that little tap on my shoulder, and I heard his voice again. You too are going to die someday. Death was back. Sometimes you've heard him when you've been sitting in a intensive care unit in a hospital staring at those double doors and he just kind of nudges you in the ribs and says one of, you, one of, one, one of these days your number's going to be up. Happy reminder. And as I acted, exited that cemetery that little voice was kind of whispering you two are going to die one of these days you two are going to die one of these days it's going to be the end for you. And I wanted to say aloud, but I said it in my mind, it's going to be the end for me here, but it's not going to be the end. For nothing can defeat the purposes of God. Somebody's written a little ditty, goes like this. God's plan had a marvelous, wonderful beginning. Man spoiled his chances by sinning. We know that the, end, that the story will end in God's glory, but right now the other side's winning. Well, the other side may be winning, but the other side is not going to win. I was doing some channel surfing the other day with my TV, and I went by, uh, not with my TV, with my remote, and I, I went by Channel 7, and I put it on the put it on... Channel 7, and there were the cathedrals. You ever heard of the cathedrals? Haven't you ever heard of the cathedrals? Not seen one, heard them. It's a quartet. They got a guy on there, It's about 100 years old, and he's got a voice, mellow, you ever heard him? Bass voice. I mean, and they introduced the piano player. He's from Strawberry, Arkansas, big city of Strawberry. And they were, gonna, they were talking about the song he had written and they were fixing to sing it and the song was real catchy title I read the end of the book we win and they started singing that and they were getting down called Margaret in there and said look at this I mean they were getting after it and that old man got so excited I thought he was going to have a stroke I mean he was dancing all over that, and he was pointing at everybody in the crowd you know and, and they were singing about 50 times they said it. I've read the end of the book. We win. We do. Now you go to bed tonight and understand that tomorrow things will be, be all right because there is nothing as powerful as the purpose of God, not even death. We win. And if you've read Tolstoy's War and Peace, You remember when the prince came to the czar and they were getting ready for the battle the next day and the czar was unfolding and folding maps, folding and unfolding maps and the prince said to the czar, what about tomorrow? Will we win the battle? And the czar said, I think not. Real encouragement. I think not. I think not, he said. We'll not win the battle? What will happen to us? And the Tsar of Russia said, we don't count battles. The only battle we count is the last one. And we've already won that one. I've read the end of the book, we win. No place for despair in the kingdom. Finally, you've been glad to hear that word, and finally. <laughs> the word you've been waiting on. There's no place for impatience. And so he said, this is how it works. First there's a blade, then there's the ear, then there's the grain in the ear. That's what he said. He said, there's a process that goes on. You can't rush the process. First, there is the the blade comes up, then the ear in the blade, then the grain in the blade. And the process is developed over time, and when the process is finished, the harvest comes. And you can't rush it. A day with God is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And even though you and I would like to see God's plan completed, we can't rush that plan. And so the farmer goes to bed at night, after he's planted, after he's done what he can, and he understands that he just has to be patient and in time, The harvest comes. It's like the little boy who saw the cocoon. And there was a tiny crack in the cocoon and he peered into the crack and he saw a little, a beautiful butterfly struggling to live, struggling to come out. And so he took his hands and he cracked the cocoon, opened it so the butterfly could be free and in doing so, destroyed. it. He meant well. He had good intentions. But trying to accelerate the purpose, the, accelerate the procedure and the process, you sometimes destroy the purpose. You can't rush God. And it may be that bef- you may die before God's plan is completed, but God's plan will be completed. you just have to wait on. Now, I'm not too keen on waiting. But I have discovered that the Bible is loaded with this truth that the people of God have learned just to wait on Him. Now, let me tell you what I think that means. I think waiting on God means that I come to a full conviction or confidence that God knows what he's doing. You remember that group of people that came from John the Baptist to Jesus? John's in prison. They come, are you Messiah? They said, if you're Messiah, why don't you say so? Why don't you do something? Why don't you you get on with it if you're the Messiah? And Jesus sent them back to tell John the Baptist, you know, tell him what what you've seen me do. Tell him what you've heard me say. And then he makes a little statement that you sometimes miss. He said, Blessed is the man who is not offended in me. I like the translation of that. that goes like this. Happy is the man who doesn't get upset by the way I handle my business. Waiting on God means that I've come to believe that God knows what He's doing, that God is in control. Waiting on God means that I've come to believe that God knows about my need and cares it was in 1921 in the Kane Summit Hospital in New York City they were getting ready to do an appendectomy a doctor a surgeon by the name of Evan Kane was to perform the operation he had done over four thousand of them so it was going to be a routine operation except for two things it was going to be the first time an operation was performed with local anesthetic Dr. Kane had always advocated that local anesthetic was safer than general anesthetic but nobody had ever been operated on with just a local they call it that's medical terminology local and, and so they, they wanted to try that but they in order to try the surgery with local, they had to find somebody who was willing to do it. And not anybody, you know, not just anybody was ready to volunteer to do something that had never been done before. I mean, they were all a little bit squeamish about being awake when you were being cut on. And, 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 and they were worried that the anesthetic would wear off before the surgery was over. So he couldn't find a volunteer. Finally found a volunteer a courageous man who agreed to allow them to do surgery with just a local anesthetic, awake all the time. So they scrubbed up, rolled him in there, and started cutting on him. Evan came, took his scalpel, and made that incision wherever they cut you to get your appendix. And he saw the appendix, inflamed, went in there to get it, took it out, excised it, removed it, and the patient complained only of a minor sensation of pain. didn't bother him that bad. Dr. Cain sewed him up and sent him to the uh, waiting area, and two days later he was dismissed from the hospital. Successful surgery. But I said there were two unusual things about that surgery. Not only was it the first surgery performed with local anesthetic, but the patient... Evan Cain operated on was Evan Cain. He operated on himself. The doctor operated on himself. True story. Now you say, well, I find that a little hard to believe. (laughs) That a guy would operate on himself. I mean, how much harder is it to believe that than it is to believe that this God of heaven one day became a man? Now, there are several reasons why he became a man, but one reason he became a man was is that he wanted to experience our pain. A high priest who endured everything you and I will ever endure. Rejection, he's felt it. Temptation, he's known it. Death, he's tasted it. He has known the pain of the cripple's limp. He has known the heat of the diseased fever. He has known the loneliness and the tears of the sad. He knows everything you've experienced. And he experienced it in order that you might trust the healer and wait on him. And if you believe that he knows what he's doing and is in control, and that he knows about your need and cares about your need. Can't you wait on him? There are three things that are inappropriate in the kingdom. A pride that says, I don't need God. A despair that says, there is no hope. And an impatience that says, I can't wait on God. Let's pray. Our Father, for this moment of invitation, as you invite us to make our response, I pray there would be a quiet hush so that we could hear your voice. A willing heart so that we could respond. A will so that we would. For I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. There may be somebody here this morning who has never placed their faith, his faith, her faith, in Jesus Christ. He invites you to come today to him to have eternal life, to receive his gift of eternal life. Or maybe you want to come this morning to put your life and your witness, your influence, your talents, your gifts, together in the discipline of a church. And you feel like God is leading you to this church, maybe a college student, an adult. Or there may be some of us who just need a fresh encounter with Christ. A fresh encounter with the Lord that comes with repentance and trust to Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.